Hello and a very warm welcome to a new episode of Women Build, brought to you by World Architecture News from Alison and Nav. In today's episode, we speak to Ruth Todd, president of Page and Turnbull, about the importance of historic preservation and adaptive reuse, the positive value of recycling buildings and the practicalities of future-proofing these historic buildings. With offices in San Francisco, Los Angeles and Sacramento, Page and Turnbull was established in 1973 and was one of the first architecture firms in California to dedicate its practice to historic preservation. As the first ever female president of Page and Turnbull, Ruth leads the company's work in historic preservation and adaptive reuse within the context of economic development and placemaking. Her leadership in cultural and historic master plans has catalyzed economic development and helped build stronger communities by integrating contemporary architecture into these historic contexts. Thank you and welcome today, Ruth. Really pleased to have you on board and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. First question I normally ask of people, because definitions of terms vary around the world, is how do you define adaptive reuse and historic preservation? I would say that historic preservation is a much broader term than adaptive reuse. Adaptive reuse can be a subset of historic preservation, but not necessarily. Adaptive reuse could happen with any type of building, not necessarily a historic building. It's easier to define adaptive reuse than historic preservation in that it's an architectural approach where you're taking one particular building type, a building that was designed for a particular use that may not be relevant anymore, and you are adapting it and reusing it for a new purpose. Uh, one example of that would be we recently adapted a military barracks at the Presidio of San Francisco for the Disney Family Museum. Uh, so that's the adaptive reuse of a former military barracks for a new cultural use. Uh, we have have adapted an abandoned church as a new art society, and we're currently working to adapt a WPA era post office to become a restaurant and the focal point for a public park. And these are historic buildings, but they don't always need to be historic uh, or necessarily all that old in order to reuse them from one purpose to a new purpose. And the, the definition of historic preservation is much more broad. As I mentioned, the adaptive reuse of historic buildings is a subset of historic preservation. Uh, but preservation is really an approach to, uh, to history and preserving the physical fabric of a culture so that it can represent a particular history and time and place. So it's not just an architectural response like adaptive reuse is. Uh, and one example of historic preservation would be to take a historic building and uh, use it for its original purpose uh, by either just repairing it and um, adapting new systems so that the historic building can continue to have a useful lifespan without necessarily changing the use. And how is historic preservation managed in the U.S.? Who regulates it? Uh, in the States, historic preservation is guided and sometimes regulated at the national level through the Department of the Interior's National Park Service. So typically there are national 
criteria that are often adapted in very similar formats at the state level and the local level. And in the United States, uh, typically, we don't start evaluating for historical significance until a building has reached 50 years of age or older, uh, because we need the perspective of, of time and context in order to make that determination. But in the U.S., in order to be determined to be a historically significant building, you need two things. It needs to be significant, and it has to have enough uh, physical integrity remaining to convey that significance. So a historic building could be significant because it's associated with events that have contributed to broad patterns in history. It could be associated with the lives of significant persons in our past. And typically, judging on architecture, the third criteria is that the building embodies the distinctive characteristics of a type or a period or a method of construction, or it's been designed by and is a good example of the work of a master architect or builder, or it has high artistic values. And you obviously feel very passionate about this. Um, You've been working in this field for a long time. So why do you think it's important to preserve these historic buildings? What's, What's the pull for you? Uh, well, the pull for me personally is it's two. Uh, one is I, I value historic preservation and what historic preservation contributes to the recordation and the acknowledgement of society and, and our culture uh, and how important I think it is uh, that to, to recognize that historic buildings are probably the most tangible example of the continuity of a a society. And Ruth, do you think the public support this maintenance of history, even though sometimes it might cost more than a new build? Is it generally favoured by the public to keep these buildings intact and working? Well, uh, when you're putting it in the context of public support, I can definitely say that um, historic preservation and the preservation of historic buildings has become much more mainstream than, say, in the 1970s when it was a fairly new movement. And I do feel that the public is very supportive of historic preservation, but where the rubber hits the road is where it's a private individual who has been burdened with the preservation of significant buildings and that there needs to be not just public support for the concept of preservation, but I feel that there needs to be public funding in order to support some of the private sector mandates for preservation that often come along um, through planning uh, approvals and requirements. And is there funding that can normally be accessed for these for projects like this? I do feel that there needs to be much more support at the public sector or the provision of incentives, financial incentives that would allow private sector property owners to be able to reinvest in their buildings in a a more appropriate way, according to preservation standards that sometimes are more strict and sometimes are more costly. Uh, And so some of the incentives that I think are are very valuable are building codes uh, that 
would allow historic buildings to get some sort, some sense of code relief relative to systems or structural interventions that would be costly uh, for, for historic buildings to meet new building codes when, frankly, they've stood the test of time and can often get credit by um, the enactment of building codes that allow greater leeway for historic buildings to be reused. And in the U.S., the Federal Historic uh, Tax Credits Program is very, very valuable incentive. Many states also provide the same kind of tax credit, which gives you a, a tax relief for spending extra money on historic buildings as long as they abide by preservation standards. Uh, and then sometimes there are grant programs that city governments um, can provide as incentives to developers or private property owners to do to spend um, more attention attention on historic preservation techniques that um, help to preserve the historic buildings. And um, the grants can sometimes offset the extra costs that historic preservation may require. So how important would you say is preservation over rebuild when it comes to managing climate change and energy use? You asked me earlier about um, how I came to be involved in the preservation of historic architecture, and I forgot to mention that one of the biggest um, influences for me was the concept of recycling buildings, because I think that there's so much embodied energy in existing buildings. And if you're going to focus on reusing existing buildings, I think the quality and the significance of historic buildings versus non-historic buildings should should be should be a priority and often historic buildings have the the qualities and the flexibility and the architectural character and charm and typically high quality materials that are worthy of um, preserving and recycling and continuing to contribute to the the physical fabric of our of our times. Thank you. So there's a real valuable environmental element to preservation, which I I think we can all recognise. Moving on now, Ruth, I was wondering if you could tell us what needs to be considered when you want to integrate contemporary architecture into existing historic contexts. Uh, well, typically, the first thing we look at is what what is the context? Uh, what's the significance of that context? Typically, when you're integrating something new into an existing historic context, there are multiple buildings involved, multiple landscapes or spaces. And so the first thing is really to understand what are the physical characteristics of those historic contexts and what is the purpose of the new intervention, the new um, piece of contemporary architecture? Is it a building similar or a a use that's similar to its neighbors? Uh, How much attention should it call to itself? Is it a civic building? Is it a cultural building? Is it a unique typology that deserves a particular response that may be more contemporary? And so sort of the, the vocabulary that gets discussed in terms of integrating new architecture into existing historic contexts is is looking at the form and the scale and the massing, the horizontal and vertical rhythms of the new building within a broader 
uh, streetscape. And so things like the horizontal alignments of floor levels and window fenestration, the rhythm of the vertical fenestration, how the building relates at the, the ground level compared to other buildings within that context. I think it's really this, the rhythms, form, scale, and mass are sort of the, the most important things to get right. Uh, and then the materiality and colors. Often, if you have similar materials or colors, but treat them in a much more contemporary fashion, uh, you can introduce new contemporary architecture that can call attention to its own time and place, but still fit in within the neighborhood fabric. And how about adding new technology, such as automated doors and solar panels? The approach that we take as preservation architects at Page and Turnbull is that buildings are not frozen in time. It's very rare for a historic building to have to look exactly as it was when it was built and that the concept of recycling and reusing historic buildings means that you do need to um, introduce change that allows them to become, to be functional and valuable contributors uh, for today's time and place. Uh, Some examples of that certainly are now, uh, whether you're dealing with replacement windows for energy efficiency, uh, certainly the concept of solar panels on roofs. And I think that our approach is really that these buildings need to adapt. They need to respond to contemporary needs and technology that helps them remain useful over time. Uh, And that introducing technology should be looked at as something that would change over time as technology improves. And so inserting that technology in ways that allow for easily replaceable or reversible situations makes it much more palatable to have the conversation about new technology in historic buildings. And what are some of the key things you've learned from working on historic preservation projects? Uh, The key thing that I've learned is that you always need to be, um, you you need to take the long view. You need to make decisions that allow for reuse over a long period of time. And so thinking about every time you intervene into a historic building, you need to recognize that someone else may also intervene in that building in, you know, 40 years or 50 years or 100 years. And how do you make these projects and buildings work for climate change considerations? Well, it's like the historic preservation community says the greenest building is the one that's not new construction. It's the one that already exists. And so recognizing that existing buildings contain all of the embodied energy of the past and don't require new expenditures of energy to make them work better for the future is sort of the the most sensitive contribution to climate change that an architect could make. And finally, what are some of the challenges you faced in terms of legal issues or restrictions due to planning? Uh, The 
the legal issues typically in the United States, uh, if there are federal funds, uh, there need to be um, the project needs to abide by historic preservation rules and regulations. That's not always the case uh, in projects that do not require federal funds. And so sometimes there's a challenge to meet the um, desire for historic preservation when it's not necessarily regulated or mandated. Uh, Here in California, we have uh, environmental laws that consider historic buildings part of the environment. And so there's a requirement for the planning and entitlements process that historic buildings would be either, you know, preserved or you'd lessen the impacts to historic preservation or you would mitigate those impacts. And what we found is that there's a lot of historic, that without these regulations, um, not everyone would think to preserve historic buildings. Uh, And so the regulations do allow for much more of a historic preservation approach in California, but it also comes with added costs and added time to schedules, which also influences costs. That was really interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I hope you found it as interesting as we did in terms of talking through what you've been involved in. Thank you so much. We welcome your feedback on the podcast. So please aim all your comments to waneditorial at haymarket.com. You can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. So follow, download and join us as we look into the world of architecture from a female perspective, wherever you are.